Well, tonight, for the first message of foretold, if you want to open your scriptures, I'm going to be primarily in Isaiah 6, 7, and 8, uh, mostly Isaiah chapter 7. And tonight's message is called, From Present to Promise. Someone say that with me. From present to promise. Let's do that again. From present to promise. In times and seasons of difficulty and in times and seasons of peace, I think it would do us well to remember what has been foretold rather than focus on our past or even our present. Because a lot of times things come up from the past, things come up in the present, and it's really easy to get shaken. Have you ever been on track for something and just this little thing pops up and it almost you feel like your life goes on pause or like there's an interruption? Well, the Lord actually gives us uh, the ability to understand how to steward those moments. In Colossians 3.2, I talk about this all the time, but it's such an appropriate scripture. It says to set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. I'm going to read that again. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Because when you set your mind on unseen things that are promised, someone say promised, the unseen things that are to come, you begin to properly manage everything that comes your way. You set your mind on the promises of God so that any reality opposite of that promise does not shake you. You set your mind on what he says is true, and you're not wavered by that. Why did Jesus sleep on a boat in a storm when all of his passengers were shaken with fear? Because his mind was set on things above. I want to say it in a different way. His mind, the Messiah, Jesus, was set on things to come, which gave him an extreme amount of peace, so much that he was restful knowing his seated position that was foretold by many. And because he knew who he was, because he knew why he came, a little bit of wind and a little bit of turbulence didn't cause him to even be moved. And I feel like a lot of times in life we can be easily be moved by situations, by events, by, by, by trials, by, by all these things in life, and the way that you can make sure that you remain in a restful, peaceful place in your life is to set your mind not on what you see, but set your mind on who you are in Christ Jesus. Setting your mind on there is a promise of peace. There is a promise of victory. There is a promise that strongholds will not stay. There is a promise over your life, and he says set your mind there so that you know how to respond here. That's why when Judas, when Judas sat at the, last, at the table at the Last Supper, Jesus looked at Judas and he looked at him and he, what did he say? He said, go do what you must. Why? Because Jesus' mind was not set on, I know what's about to happen. His mind was set on, no matter what's about to happen, I know what's going to happen in the end. If his mind was only set on crucifixion, he maybe could have been easily wavered because he was God, but he was in flesh. 
But his mind was set on things to come that helped him to endure the process called crucifixion. I want to read this text because there's something significant in here I think we skip over. In John chapter 13, verses 26 to 27, it says, Jesus responded, It is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Verse 27 says, When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus told him, Hurry, go do what you're going to do. The shortened version that some translations say is, Judas, go do what you must. Did you catch it? Jesus was not speaking to Judas. Because at that point, who entered in Judas? Satan. So Jesus actually looked at Lucifer and gave him permission to go do what he had to do. Betray him. A very similar story in the Old Testament, another uh, uh, example is that Satan actually got permission from God to mess with someone. Job. Why? Because there was a process or a procedure that had to be gone through, that had to be done for future things to come. What was the procedure for the future things to come for us? Through Jesus, betrayal, arrest, crucifixion. Well, what were the future things foretold? The enemy defeated, sin having no power, resurrection, death has lost its sting. There had to be a process to see the promise. And Jesus was fixated on the promise that helped him go through the process. And the church has been taught over and over to speak against the enemy, which is in part truth. But what if we could be so settled in our spirit seeking God that the best way to fight the enemy is to look at Lucifer and say, go do what you must. Because no matter what you do, it doesn't change the promise. No matter what you do, I am not going to be moved because I am seeking after the Father. And I am willing to go through whatever you bring because I know my Father will see the promise through. Anything that the devil tries to do in your life will not change the promise that God has over it. The trick is setting your mind on the promise so you understand how to manage the process. And sometimes the process are things that God brings, and sometimes the process is trials that the enemy brings. And what, the, and what people will tend to do is when the enemy comes against us, we tend to back down, we tend to stop, we tend to get on pause, we tend to wonder, are we in the right direction? We start to question everything, and God says, your mind was not fixated on me when you started to question things because of a fiery trial. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the promise. Is this speaking to anybody already? Because if the devil has been defeated, how many of you believe that? Every attempt has to fail. Because past tense, he's been defeated. So no matter what he brings at you, it ain't going to work. 
Overcoming evil is overcoming the temptation to be led by it. And sometimes you're led by evil in your pause because you didn't know how to manage the trial. Evil is not just bad things. The scripture calls evil chaos and wasting your time. So some things of evil are you wasted your time because you let the enemy dictate the process. You said the, the enemy starts going and then you said, wait a minute, I can't do anything anymore. You lose a loved one and you don't understand why, so you put your life on pause. You have an issue in your finances, you don't understand why, so you put your life on pause. God says, set your mind on the promise so you know how to engage with the issue. Is this speaking to anybody? Is our faith so unshaken that when the enemy operates, we stay rested? Is our faith so unshaken that when there is chaos, it's easy for us to speak peace? To be foretold, the term foretold, is to tell beforehand of the coming of a future event by procedure or source of information. Let me say that again. Foretold, the name of this teaching series, to tell beforehand of the coming of a future event through the process of a source of information or procedure. It is not predict predicting something that might happen. You hear me? It is not predicting something that might happen. It is speaking an event now that will occur by means of procedure. Procedure meaning that of what Father God says has to take place before you see the foretold event. Are y'all following me? It is an announcement of not something that might come, but it is an announcement of something that will come. The question for the believer is what will you do with this information? Because what you do with the information will affect when we see this foretold event. In other words, there is a foretold event that Jesus is coming back. Would you agree? There is a foretold event that everything will be restored. But the procedure the scripture lays out is in the middle of wars and in the middle of trials and in the middle of all these things, he's going to be looking for a spotless bride. So if we want the event of his return to come back quickly, we don't need to waste our time looking in the stars to find red moons and, and red stars and, and yellow meteorites or whatever we're looking for. We need to get our minds focused on things above and say, Lord, let me be found spotless. Spotless not meaning we're perfect, but spotless as in you accept your true identity that you have been perfected unto right standing. What the warfare is is not getting to a place where you do everything right. Obviously, we strive for that. We want to be as in the image of Jesus what we can. But the true warfare that brings you into a place where you're walking in correction is to really start to believe, oh, I'm perfected. I don't have to earn it, and if I believe it, my life will start, to, will start to follow it. In other words, there's a word that was released at the gala, and I'll go ahead and spoil it. I'm going to go ahead and tell you it's going to be the word for 2024 of turn the key. Turn the key 
is about you've got a gift in you, a call on your life that is to unlock the heavens. And 2024 is not going to be Kyle is going to turn the key. It's going to be every single person under the sound of my voice starts to turn the key. In other words, start to walk in what they are called to do. Why do you not walk in what you're called to do? Because you don't believe in the promise that you have been perfected unto right standing. So you think you're not worthy to turn the key. You cannot earn the worthiness to turn a key. But there was one that could. And he did. What will you do of the information, with the information that has been foretold that you are good? That you have been perfected under right standing? That he's looking for us to be a spotless bride? It's kind of the exact same thing that happened in Ezekiel. I want to read three verses that some of you may be familiar with in Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord, verses 1 through 3, came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. It's kind of cool that we sang that song tonight. And then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he, God, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Now the rest of the story, we know what happens. He, he prophesies, he speaks to the bones, he speaks life over a dead thing and what happened to the bones. They came to life, right? But what did God do with Ezekiel before he prophesied to the bones? He says, Ezekiel, let me get your mindset on the potential of what's in front of you. And then there was action. Before he could prophesy life to the bones, he had to see that the end result of dead bones was life. You hearing this? He had to see the potential in the dead thing to speak life into the dead thing. And some of us have gotten to this point, maybe you are are a seasoned uh, Christian who have been in churches over and over trying to find the right thing, trying to walk in your gift. Maybe you're newer to this whole thing and you don't know what the heck is going on. You're probably in the best position because you ain't dealing with religion. You're just dealing with relationship. Can someone say amen to that? I don't know where you are, but what I do know this is that you have to start looking at your life and see the promise and not the reality. You may be at a dead pause, but the promise is that you are not dead. You are alive. And there is something in you that has got to turn a key for heaven to loosen this area. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Meaning there are things done in heaven, and if you would set your mind on what is done, that you are worthy to turn a key, then we would start to see the things from heaven release. Right? Many are so consumed in what's happening all around us that our eyes have shifted from promise to our present. And when you do that, promise that has been foretold goes on pause Because you spend more time trying to prevent what you fear rather than being seated in what's to come. Don't try to prevent what you fear. Set your mind on what's to come so that when something comes in your reality that you might fear, fear does not guide you, promise does. Right? Like when you've been praying over that family member for 20 years to get saved and the next thing you know they relapse, do you question your prayers? Or do you focus on the promise? 
Okay. Shift your mind from present to promise. Now, some will say, well, what about Proverbs 27.1? Proverbs 21 says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. We've read, just keep that up if you don't mind. We've read the scripture wrong because what we read it is we say that tomorrow is not promised. But that's not what the scripture says. It says don't boast about tomorrow. Meaning there is a promise of tomorrow, but don't boast about it. it. Tomorrow is promised. Maybe not necessarily the tomorrow of your flesh, but there is an everlasting tomorrow for those who believe. So do not boast about tomorrow and not knowing what today will bring is simply this. Do not get so consumed in your plans for tomorrow that you miss a word that might shift you into a different tomorrow. Because what happens is you can get your eyes focused on your plans, which is boasting about your tomorrow, that this is what my plans are, when God may, in a word, shift your plans. That has happened to me multiple times over the years, where I get focused on this is my plan, and I have to be humbled to say to when God says, well, that's not my plan. Does it make sense? Now, Present to promise is not what you hope to happen. It's what he says will happen, including what he has spoken of your life. Now, there is a very popular scripture, don't throw it up quite yet, that we use many times at Christmas in Christmas services. And uh, whether you call it Christmas or birth, I don't care what you call it. That's what this time of the year is that most people know. Okay? And the scripture goes like this, and again, don't, don't put it up. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. We, you ever heard that at Christmas? Well, what's interesting about that scripture is the context of the passage. Because we hear that scripture and think roses and, you know, rainbows and dandelions and oh that's so beautiful but it was actually a little bit of a different context of when that prophecy was given of the coming messiah so we're going to get in isaiah chapter 7 and 9 i'm going to start in verses 1 through 2 when ahaz son of jotham and grandson of uzziah was king of judah king rezin of syria and pekah son of remaliah the king of israel that was really good even though i probably pronounced it all wrong <laughs> set out to attack jerusalem However, I love when the Bible says however, they were unable to carry out their plan. The news had come to the royal court of Judah, Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. King Ahaz at this time has entered into an alliance with the king of Syria. Of Assyria. He entered into an ungodly alliance for good reasons. Because he wanted protection from the onslaught of these two opposing armies trying to attack his reign, his kingdom. Okay? He allied with this guy for a good reason, but it was the wrong alliance. When he made the alliance, he even took silver and gold from God's temple and gave it to the king of Assyria. Okay? When he brought the offering to the king of Assyria, King Ahaz looked at the pagan temple and saw all the stuff that the king of Assyria had done. All these idol worship and sacrifices. So you know what he did? 
he went back to his kingdom and he changed God's temple to look like what he saw in the pagan temple. I like to call that being culturally relevant. It's what the church has done. Let's get relevant and change what God has put in place to meet what the people are feeding on. So he's not realizing what he's doing. He's no longer even having in mind the promises that God has spoken over. His eyes are on his what? His present. Even though this guy is worshiping other gods, not the God that we serve, he said, there's something about this alliance that I need. There's something about this relationship that seems good. Can I tell you something about how the enemy operates? The enemy doesn't look evil. He postures himself as almost as light. Anybody know the scripture? Say it out loud if you know it. What is it? That's right. He masquerades as an angel of light, meaning how the enemy operates is to get you to agree with it because it looks like a good idea. So that's what's going on with this king of Ahaz and the king of Assyria. He says, okay, well, let's make this covenant. When your eyes and your mind are fixed on the wrong thing, you begin to make decisions according to the present. Do not manage today because of a defense. Don't manage today because of a hurt. Get your eyes on what God has promised and manage the hurt accordingly. Okay? Ahaz was terrified, trembling and shaking, it says, like trees in a storm. Why? Because he and the people of his kingdom were embracing fear of the present instead of faith in God. Did you know that trusting in God brings peace every single time? Isaiah 2 even prophesies of what it, lo- what it looks like for the Lord to reign. It says in Isaiah 2 verse 4, The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for warfare anymore. Did you, did you get that? When the Messiah reigns, there won't be war. Yet the scripture says that there is coming of wars and rumors of wars. It seems contradictory. But let me tell you what's going on. It's saying when the Messiah reigns, conflict happens without war. There will be no need to train for battle. Jesus did not war with the devil. Jesus said, you do you. He looked at the devil and said, go do what you must. You know how Jesus handled the conflict? He said, Satan, do what you need to do. And death tried to hold him down. But as Satan did what he did, he, Jesus defeated death. He rose from the grave and he was not bound by any strategy of the enemy. Because Jesus knew the promise. And we would do good to stop trying to war in the idea of being mediators and fixers and simply allow God to reign. Because he says, when I reign, I'm the mediator. He said, it says the government will be on what? His shoulders. 
So even though there may be wars and rumors of wars, they are simply indications of where he is not reigning. But where his government is reigning, there will be no need for battle. There will be no need to train for battle. Because he says, I am the mediator and I'll handle the conflict. Spiritual warfare is not trying to war with people or war with hurt. Spiritual warfare is getting your eyes fixed on the promise so that you will not be shaken. Is this making sense? The only warring we should be doing is the fight of embracing promise to which we say, get behind me, Satan, which is simply a process of, Satan, you do you, I'm standing firm. This is a different word, isn't it? Do you realize how much weight is lifted when you can just stand in the presence of God and say, Satan, you do what you need to do. You know why? Because it don't affect me. Even when it seems like it's affecting my present, my eyes are not on the present. So have fun, buddy. Because I'm focused on the promise. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've had to focus on the promise. How many of you have had to focus on the promise? Right now, we have to be a people who are not going to focus on what's going on now. We have to be focused on the promise. What is the promise? That there's going to be an apostolic uh, movement in this area. That there is going to be worship to such a degree where we don't need a sermon. The worship is so thick that people walk in and they're saved and they're delivered. Some of you are newer here. Let me tell you something. This house has walked into some crazy things. Two years ago, we saw a woman get out of a wheelchair and she's right here right now and she's standing. We've seen seen tumors disappears out of throats we have seen we have seen some crazy miracles and if things are happening like that the enemy is going to try to shift us to present attacks but if we're walking in that dimension if we would set our eyes on a promise that he is taking us to a new expression then we would no longer be moved by present demonic strategies I get calls all the time about how the enemy is operating in your life. I say to you that your new strategy is, Satan, do what you must. I know where I'm seated. Because it's not your job to fight the devil. The government is not on your shoulders. It's on his. Okay. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, take your son, Shear Jashub, and go out to meet King Ahaz. You'll find him at the end of the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool, near the road leading to the field where cloth is washed. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burnout embers, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah son of Remaliah. You hear what God told Isaiah to tell King? He said, stop worrying. Where you see two threats, I see two burned out embers. Burned out. They have the appearance of burning. They have the appearance of being on fire. But the only fire you need to fear is the fire of God. Fire, consuming, taking control. God says, I'm the burning one. Stop worrying about the counterfeit. Deuteronomy 4, our God is a what? Consuming fire. Get your eyes off the counterfeit and move from your present to the promise. It appears like it's powerful, 
but it ain't got nothing. It appears like it's going to do damage, but God just looks at it and goes, <laughs> stop worrying. Now, mind you, this is predicated on one very important thing. You are seeking God. Okay. Going further in the passage, God says the invasion is not going to happen. Stop worrying about these two. Verse 9, it says, Israel is no stronger than its capital, Samaria. Samaria is no stronger than its king, Pekah, son of Remaliah. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. I cannot make you stand firm unless your faith is firm. Some versions say, if you will not believe, you will not be established. That does not mean if you don't believe or if you don't have faith, the attack will be successful. Because in this moment, and many of your moments, God's already talked about the attack. No matter where your faith stands, he says, the promise is, it ain't going to happen. He says, that's nothing. But the belief in what will happen will affect how and when you're established. He doesn't say, if you don't believe, I'm going to let them attack you. He says, if you don't trust what I'm promising you, then you're not going to be established after it's done. Your faith does not affect what God says will or will not happen, but it will affect the course of your life as his plan comes to pass. Is this too heavy? Do not let your faith be shaken. Move your mind from present to promise so that every step is managed and established according to his word and not your circumstances. It's like this. God gives you a promise and you think your faith is going to dictate whether or not the promise comes to pass. Faith is not about if his promise will come to pass. God's not a liar. So if he promises it, what's going to happen? The question is, will you be established in experiencing the outcome of the promise? In other words, will you be able to walk in that promised land or when the gates of the promised land are open, you're still stuck wandering around the wilderness? Think about what happened to, to, to the uh, people of God coming out of, uh, of, of Egyptian slavery with Moses. The promise was, get out of Egypt and I will take you into a land flowing, flowing with milk and honey. But in a moment when Moses lost the ability to focus on the promise, he did some things that God did not tell him to do and they were wandering around a desert for 40, how many? How many? For, 40 years, which was only a nine-day journey. It's not that God changed the promise of get into a land flowing with milk and honey. It's because you didn't have faith to stick to my plan, it's going to take you a lot longer to get established in something that is right there. Ugh. Now, in verse 3, I want you to throw that up there if you don't mind. It says, it says something very specific. The Lord told Isaiah, take your son Shear Jashub and go up to meet King 
Ahaz. That name, Shear Jashub, is translated this, a remnant shall return. God says, bring this reality that a remnant shall return before the king. Let him know that because you put trust in the king of Assyria, Judah will be taken into captivity. And I'm only going to save the ones that put their trust in me. Do you put your trust in him or your trust in your present? Well, I don't know how I can deal with this thing I'm dealing with in my life. You want to know how you return from that thing you're dealing with? Where you put your trust in. Or you can sit in that fire or the thing that poses itself as fire for years and years and years when a simple act of faith could have released you. And some, for some people, a simple act of faith is, I'm going to forgive the thing that happened to me. But you're still waiting on them to apologize. You know what that's called? Wandering around the wilderness. Well, when they're worthy of my forgiveness, I, I'm glad Jesus did not act like that. What is the, the, the let's take turn the key. What is the faith key that you need to turn? Where do you put your trust? What do you try to manage? The present or the present according to the promise? Hmm. Isaiah 40, 31 those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. You will not renew your strength by trying to find strength in your way and your alliances. You will only find strength when you trust in him. So all of this is being spoken to King Ahaz. Am I losing y'all? Y'all are y'all y'all good? All of this is being spoken to King Ahaz. And then, God, and then I want you to look at what God speaks through Isaiah. Now, before you throw that up there, think about what's going on. King Ahaz just made an alliance with somebody he wasn't supposed to make an alliance with. And God is trying to tell Ahaz, trust in me. So this is what happens in verse 10. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation. Make it as difficult as you want, Ahaz. As high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, I'm not going to test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, Would you listen, you royal family of David? Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Why are you exhausting the patience of God? God just offered Ahaz a challenge to believe him and be blessed. And now God says, I will even give you confirmation to help you trust me. He says, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, no, nah, I'm good. I'm not going to ask God for anything. God allowed this to happen. I'm not going to trust him. You ever been there? Why did God allow this to happen? You know where your eyes are set? Present. It's amazing how God offers free gifts and we reject his gifts and his confirmations. Can I tell you something about God? God knows that you need confirmations for a basis to believe. You are not immature to say, I don't. You are not more mature when you say, I don't need a confirmation, I have faith. 
He designed us to actually help us with confirmations. You want to know how he confirmed how real he is? Jesus. And even though he gave us Jesus, there are still people that are waiting for the sign of confirmation. We need confirmation. Your faith gives you strength and confidence to say, God, confirm this. That's where you should be. It's okay to say, God, I need a confirmation. You're not doubting in the promise. He invites you to that. You're asking for confirmation in your present to help keep your mind and your eyes on the promise. So Isaiah's like, are you kidding me? All this was offered to help you, and you're still saying no? So he says in 14, all right, the Lord himself's going to give you a sign if you don't want one. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God's with us. By this time, the child is old enough to choose what's right, reject what's wrong. He will be eating yogurt and honey. Y'all hear that? It's God like to eat yogurt and honey. <laughs> for, for before the child is that old, too, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. He says, you don't want a sign? Fine, I'll give you a sign. He will be born. Now, the sign was actually letting the king know this. When he's born and he goes through this process to where he'll be old enough to eating yogurt and honey, that will be the sign that what I promised you has come to pass. Those two armies will not conquer you. But, as we discussed earlier, the promise is going to come true. But that doesn't mean he will be what? Established. So what happens is he says, since you did not have faith in the promised, you could have been established. But instead, verse 17, the Lord will bring things on you, your nation, your family, unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. The one you just made an alliance with, he going to attack you. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the army of southern Egypt and for the army of Assyria. They will swarm around you like flies and bees. They will come in vast hordes and settle in fertile areas, also in the desolate valleys, caves, thorny places. In that day, the Lord will hire a razor from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, and use it to shave off everything, your land, your crops, and your people. Pause right there. Why is it the imagery of a razor? It was considered humiliation to have all their heads shaved off. In that day, a farmer will be fortunate to have a cow, two sheep, or goats. Nevertheless, there will be enough milk for everyone because so few people will be left in the land. You know what the Lord says? I'm going to take away everything, but I'm still going to allow you to be, to be able to be sustained. They will eat their fill of yogurt and honey. In that day, the lush vineyards, now worth 1,000 pieces of silver, will become patches of briars and thorns. The entire land will become a vast expanse of briars and thorns, a hunting ground overrun by wildlife. No one will go to the fertile hillsides where the gardens will unscrew for briars and thorns will cover them. Cattle, sheep, and goats will graze there. He said, you are spared from your present fear because I promised it would not overtake you. But your lack of faith in the promise will cause you to be unseated in the future. Did you get that? And there are so many of us that are making moves off of present fear 
and how you manage your present fear will dictate the establishment of the future. If we are going to be a house that sees this incredible move of God that we're believing for, that we're starting to walk into, we must make sure that in order to be established then, we have to properly manage now. So when, when there's trials in the house and we start to not trust each other, do we trust in the promise or make moves off the present? Amen. He gave Ahaz a promise and a chance to believe in it. There will be a day when God with us will be so tangible that we will see it in a man so that we will know what it's like to live as God with us. He was speaking of the, the Savior, Jesus. If you know that God is with you, that he influences your prayers, your worship, he protects you, he defends you, if you believe that, why does your, your present reality shake you? In the very next chapter, God tells Isaiah, I love Judah, but I'm going to have to deal with Judah because they've rejected my care, they've rejected my faith. And this is what he says in verses 7 through 10 of Isaiah 8. Therefore, the Lord will overwhelm them with a mighty flood from the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, in all of his glory. The flood will overflow all its channels, sleep into Judah until it's chin deep. It will spread its wings, submerging your land from one end to the other, O Emmanuel. Did you catch that? He just referred to the glory of the king of Assyria, who was not a worshiper, as O Emmanuel. Because God will use anything and any procedure to accomplish his purpose. That is why it's okay to say, Satan, do what you must. Because he doesn't know that in doing what he thinks he must, he's actually helping God the whole time. Because <laughs> he ain't that good. That's why he prowls around like a roaring lion. That's why he poses himself as something that looks good. I, I, I've said this many times. If you read through the scripture, the way it, it, it describes Lucifer is that he was made with pipes and timbrels, meaning he was the best musician ever created, the worship leader of heaven. So in heaven, he would get worship, and he, would, he, his, he was supposed to push worship to the Father, but when he tasted that worship, he said, I want it for myself. And in that moment, Satan fell. And I have said, of course, the music of the world is better than the church because the author of it is for the one who was created to do it. However, in the promise, the sound that the church brings forth will be better than anything Lucifer was ever made to do. Okay? So are we willing to go after a new sound? a sound that Lucifer cannot even find the frequency of. Ooh, that was prophetic right there. I just felt that. 
Verse 9. Huddle together, you nations, and be terrified. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle, but you will be crushed. Yeah, prepare for battle, but you will be crushed. Call your councils of war, but they will be worthless. Develop your strategies, but they will not succeed. God is with us. You can strategize all day and prepare for war and huddle together, but he says nothing you do will stand. The only thing that will stand is God's plan. So go ahead and do what you think you need to do. Go ahead and do what you think is justice. He says none of it matters. Your plans will not stand. Think about building the Tower of Babel. They were skilled in doing what they wanted to do. And they were building and building and building. And the Lord looked and said, oh, they're doing this thing, but it will not stand. And it came crumbling down. His, prayer, his presence should be more of reality than our present. He was even speaking over, over this king of Assyria that God is with us. Satan, do what you must do. And through all this, Going through all this present, God talks to Isaiah. And I've got, I'm, 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 I'm about five minutes from being done. But th- maybe ten. <laughs> and through all of this present, this is what God says to Isaiah in chapter 8. Watch this in verse 12. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. I'm just going to leave that one there for a second. Y'all hear that? Don't live in dread of what frightens them. I'm going to speak this to the church. Why are you scared of what's going on in the Middle East? Should we pray? Yes. Should we fear? Should we fear what's going on in our government? Should we fear about taxes raising? That was a little bit lesser than... (laughs) If... If your faith is in the promise, why do you trust more in a democratic government than a kingdom government? Make the Lord of heaven's army holy in your life. You know what the word holy means? Set apart. Make the Lord holy in your life. In other words, have him so set apart in your life that everything filters through him. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. Verse verse 16, this is what we need to do. Preserve the teaching of God and trust his instructions to those who follow me. I will wait for the Lord who has turned away from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my hope in him. Verse 20, look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. You know what completely means in, in, in the Greek? Completely. All of it. In the very next chapter, remember it says only the remnant will be saved. You know who the remnant is? Those who keep what was just spoken in Isaiah 8. Preserve the teaching, making God holy, fearing God, waiting on God, looking to his way, living the word. In the very next chapter, I didn't put the scripture up there, but I want to read this to you. This is what is prophesied in chapter 9. If you would do this, 
Keep your eyes focused on God. Live a life set apart. The time of darkness will not go on. Despair will not go on. The earth will be filled with glory. People will see a great light. God's nations will be enlarged. People will rejoice at the harvest. The yoke will be broken. The heavy burden will be lifted. The rod of the oppressor will be broken. And the enemy's ways will be fuel for the fire. Why? Isaiah 9, 6. For a child is born to us. A son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. You know what that means? If you're not experiencing peace, check your government. Because if, if you're living according to his government, you will not do anything but produce a reality of peace. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happens. If we would embrace this as our promise, our present will not shake us or distract us. His rule is fair. Can I tell you something? Gossip and lies do not move God. His government supersedes ours. No bitterness, forgiving, edifying the body. That's what he calls us to do. To not hold on to bitterness. To edify one another, not speak down about one another, forgive one another. That is the call of God. And he says, if you are doing anything outside of edifying or forgiving or holding on to bitterness, you are completely in the dark. He says, the government will always look like the king. The government will always look like the one who leads it. When you have someone in office that's not great, what happens to the country? It's the same principle for your life. Whatever your government is, it will look like the king. So anything that is opposite of the image of Jesus is not the government that we should live by. So if Jesus can put Judas over the treasury... Can I speak to that for a second? Jesus knew Judas was a thief before he put him over the money. Because when looking at each other, we do not regard each other in our present. But what is promised? You see, there was a, I'm 100% believing that there was a chance for Judas to come correct with repentance. Do you realize, do you remember what happened after Judas betrayed Jesus? He went and tried to throw the money back, meaning he felt convicted about what he did. And you know what he thought he had to do to gain entry back into the kingdom? He thought he had to buy it back. All he had to do was come and say, forgive me. If Jesus can put Judas over the treasury, treasury. if, if Jesus can take someone who's going back and forth and, and establish them as a rock to preach the word, if Jesus can tell dead people it wasn't your time to die, get up. Yeah. 
If Jesus can commission a woman, a woman at the well to preach to a town. If Jesus can turn water into wine. If Jesus can save the ones who crucify him, then we should never be moved by any present with the government that has a promise opposite of his peace will never end. If he can do that, why are we so easily moved? By accusations, by warfare, by by fiery trials. If we're going to see a move of God as a house, We've got to be people who join together so close that no matter what present brings us, we only make moves off the promise. You want to know why the Lord gives us a very strategic outline of how to deal with offense? Because the end result is he wants us to bind together in the middle of it. Not cause division. He wants us to be a people so set on promise that we would not move by present. We can, we can walk into such a degree of glory that all the friends and families that will never step foot in the church for some reason are drawn to a place. We can walk into such degree of glory that the number one disease in the United States of cancer doesn't stand a chance when we come together. Can I push some of your theology for a second? In the scripture it says that disease and all those things will be cast out by the laying on the hands of elders. I put forth to you that that was because they had to set order at that time for that present level of glory. Because I can tell you what's going on now in this house it don't take an elder to put hands on you for you to be healed. Because we shouldn't stay in that past glory. We should go from glory to glory. But we can't move from this glory to the next glory if our eyes are not on what? Him. The promise. He has a government that comes with a promise, so let us all move from present to promise and embrace what's been foretold by God that we would be revealed as a spotless bride and that we will walk into his presence face to face. That's what I'm believing for. Amen. Let's stand. Can we give God praise? <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you tonight for everything you're doing and everything you've said. I say it every week, and I want to invite you to this right now, church, that this, this place, this area of our facilities is going to be set apart. Jacob's going to lead some worship, and yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and deal with this. Y'all, y'all put your eyes right here for a second. There was a word given two weeks ago that I've got to share. I'm not going to tell you who, who gave it to me. Someone in the house. The word said that people are coming into worship and the Lord is seeing us sway back and forth and giving him glory. I, I felt his presence so strong tonight. He's still here. But with the vision that said as people were swaying, 
in this vision of worshiping God. What swayed with them was their strongholds. In other words, we came into the presence to worship and we did not cast down the strongholds. We're worshiping God, embracing the places in our life that are falling short. There is a call for everyone in here. Don't leave here embracing what you're dealing with. Maybe you want to come up here and you need some prayer. Maybe you want to sit in your seat. Maybe with your, your other half and you just, or, or the friend or family member and you just want to say in the name of Jesus, this is what I'm dealing with. I lay it down. Before you leave tonight, I, 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 I put forth to you, lay down the thing and leave saying, Lord, you're the only one I want to hold on to. Whether that takes you 20 seconds or two hours, and I mean that. Isn't that right? This place is open for you. If you want to have conversations, there's a big lobby out there. Go have them. This is fellowshipping in the name of Jesus. But let this place be set apart to do business with God. When you lay down your stronghold, you know what you're doing? Moving from what? Your present to promise. Because you're leaving with an expectation. It no longer has me. So, Lord, I just speak that every stronghold, every yoke, every scheme of the enemy tonight will be broken, will be laid down at your feet, and that we leave out of this room in the reality of our wholeness. Because we sometimes, God, operate as if we're broken, but you say that we're restored, that we're healed, that we're set free, that we're delivered. So, Lord, I just speak over every single person on the sound of my voice on your behalf right now I prophesy that as we lay down strongholds we leave with a wholeness that we have never experienced before it's in Jesus name we pray everybody said amen